Does Florida's new anti-riot law violate free speech and the right to peaceably assemble? Kirk Bailey from the ACLU of Florida joins us to compare notes. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining us. We have an interesting episode that we've been trying to put together for a while. But first, we need to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest, Kirk Bailey. He's the political director for the ACL you of Florida. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Absolutely. No, thank you for being here. What inspired our show today in part was I've been covering a couple stories sort of on this uh, kind of a new stage in federalism. And uh, so in past episodes, I've talked about the states flexing more muscle compared to the uh, federal government. And so, you know, we saw in the last election cycle, there was uh, marijuana laws, brand new marijuana laws passing marijuana, legalizing at the state level, not the federal level. They can't do that. But at the state level, they did. And so you saw this go across the country. There's also been some election reform measures there. And so uh, what I've been reading is there may be some police measures and that's going to go down the party lines, whereas some of these other instances where the states are flexing their muscle are kind of bipartisan. So I think we're seeing this new stage of the states getting stronger compared to the federal government. And so the story that we're covering today has to do with this brand new law that was uh, signed into place by uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. It's the anti-riot bill, but it's officially known as HB1 SB 484. And so I know the ACLU of Florida, I read the two-pager, some concern points that you all put out there. And I read that first, and then I read the bill. It's a 61-pager, kind of a tough read. I'll I'll be uh, totally honest with that. I had a a hard time following it at points, but I know that you all are not super huge fans of it. So let me open up with the first question. It was one of your opening bullet points on your uh, two-pager. And so in that, you said the ACLU of Florida stated that HB1 SB44 is intended to silence dissent and punish peaceful protesters seeking justice for police brutality. So can you give us a brief summary of that analysis? Yeah, thank you. Happy to. You know, I think it's important to note that there are two overarching reasons why we have this view of this particular bill. One is the context and the other is the provisions of the bill itself. First, the context. It's important to understand that the governor and legislators first proposed the ideas that ended up in this legislation last September in September 2020 in direct response to the protests that had happened over the summer after the murder of George Floyd. And at that time, as you'll recall, there was a robust discussion about what policing should look like in America. What should we be doing about excessive force? What should we be doing about qualified immunity? And, you know, as you can imagine, communities were angry about what had happened to George Floyd and dozens of other African-American, Black and Brown individuals in this country. And, you know, they they took to the streets to express their opinions about what we needed to do on that. Well, Governor DeSantis and legislators here in Florida used that as an occasion to say, we're not going to have that kind of activity in Florida. We are a pro-law and order state, and we have a particular viewpoint that we're going to advance. And so, and, and in their view, I think, try to protect, but they're not listening to, I think, what the rest of the community is concerned about, you know, with valid complaints. And so that's where this, the genesis of this legislation Fast forward a few months to January of 2021, they actually introduced the legislation that, by and large, passed almost exactly as it was 
originally proposed. And in that legislation, what they do is they increase penalties for violence, as they assert, at what they call riots or what we tend to view as peaceful protests. They increase the penalties for things like assault and battery. They create new crimes. There's a new crime around riot um, that they create. And all of that has the effect of chilling peaceful protests. So if you go to a protest and it's a, there are a number of people there, maybe let's say there are several hundred people there and somebody on the other side of that protest, maybe three or four blocks away, engages in some destructive behavior of some kind or violent behavior, the definition of riot in this bill is so broad that every individual at that event could conceivably be participating in that riot. And so that in and of itself is enough to give us real pause about how this will silence dissent. Why would you go to a peaceful protest if you believe that there might be individuals there through no fault of your own will turn violent and turn that situation into what they'll call a riot and you could get arrested, you could get thrown in jail for that. And we've already had reports from organizations and individuals who say, we don't know what we're gonna do. Like, can we use direct actions to protest police brutality and call on our communities to find a different path on policing? Um, or are we gonna get arrested if we go to the streets? And so it's, I think that's the macro view of, of how we think this is gonna silence dissent. Yeah, you know, and I took the read, just kind of the the pure sort of, you know, black text of the law and just ran through it. And to me, I wouldn't have gone as far to say that, uh, you know, it punishes peaceful protesters because it does not in its restrictive forms, you know, call out, you know, peaceful protests and calls out illegal activity like burglary and assaults and uh, batteries and things like that. And so, you know, I may have stopped short of that description, but I think where there's some common ground and where I, you know, where I'm hearing you just kind of in that vague language. And I think that that's, you know, where my concerns come up. And so that was kind of another one of your bullet points. I think we'll find a little more common ground, the overbroad and vague nature of uh, some of the terminology there that, uh, you know, you all were worried would uh, chill free speech and assembly. So, you know, maybe give me some of the examples uh, from that, because I've got a couple too I want to share. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. I think that's a great you know discussion to have. You know, definitely in this riot provision, it is unclear exactly what a riot is and who gets to determine what it is. And so, in that sense, it's both overbroad in terms of the definition and vague in terms of who gets to make the decision and what that means in terms of enforcement. And I think it's because of those items that we're concerned that they will impact peaceful protest. Not so much that obviously an individual who is actually peaceful would violate that, but they could be in an event where others who are not does something that would be clearly, you know, an assault or a battery, for example, and that would then throw that event into a riot and therefore it would sweep up so many more people than might otherwise be the case. So I think it's those provisions around riot in particular being the definition of it being lacking and therefore overbroad and the questions about who gets to make those decisions that are vague that that are so problematic. Yeah, you know, for me, I thought the definition of riot was more clear than when the riot would apply. So for me, what jumped out was sort of these aggravating elements that, uh, you know, would take like a burglary charge or, or a theft charge and enhance the charge, enhance the penalty. It had to have happened during a riot. But what it didn't connect was that during a riot, while you're also participating in the riot, which I think was the intent. But like you said before, you know, you could be just, you know, and I'm not obviously I'm not advocating for theft, but you could be a thief out there looking for a place to rip off, 
totally unrelated to any type of riot. You have no idea what's going on. You just happen to break into a store and there's a riot two blocks away. Now you have this aggravated charge because you did on the same night of a riot. And I thought that wasn't very clear. And I think that's something if I was writing this legislation, you know, I would have been more specific. But there were two other things, uh, Kirk, that kind of bothered me about it. And uh, one was the definition of unlawful assembly. And the other was cyber intimidation. For me, I felt that those, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but the terminology in there was pretty vague. So if I'm a prosecutor, I'm not sure where that bright line is. So I'm not sure. Here's the activity that comports with the law. Now you cross this bright line and now you're into the unlawful category. For me, it was a little too open-ended, made me a little uncomfortable. I don't know if you feel the same way about those. Well, we very much do. There is a lack of clarity in those um, cyber intimidation provisions that gave us real pause. And, you know, I think we're concerned about how those are going to be applied. They've already had impact on organizations that we work with. When we filed suit, we had several clients who referred to those provisions with real concerns about how it had already changed their practices. Um, They'd stopped certain things and, you know, they're trying to look at new ways of conveying information. So it's already having an impact on, on how folks are conducting their speech, if you will, about important, you know, policy issues. Well, I want to build on a little bit. And so uh, one of the things uh, that's part of this law is these aggravated factors that we talked about. So if there's a riot associated with any type of offense. So within these, and there's assault, battery, aggravated battery, burglary, theft, and grand theft. And so what I saw there was we're just going to make these penalties larger. We're going to make the charges bigger if you do it during a riot. But maybe walk me through how that impacts free speech because you know for people out there that haven't read the law if you're if you're peacefully protesting you're not going to be doing an assault you're not going to be doing a battery so how does this impact their free speech yeah uh, thank you i i think it goes to to the point i'm trying to make about how it chills people's behavior so certainly if they believe that the event is going to be peaceful overall i think they would have some confidence that you know they would be okay but What's happening is that everybody's aware that these penalties have increased. And what they can't rely on is this definition of what's going to happen at an event. And is it going to draw them into a situation where these kind of charges will be levied against them and these penalties would apply to them? And so it's really the chilling effect of what could happen at the discretion of officers, of law enforcement you sort of undetermined decision makers in this, and frankly, decision makers who probably don't have credibility or have strained credibility with the communities that are going to be in the streets. We're talking about police who are going to make decisions about incidents where, or events where African-American, Black and Brown communities may be in the streets protesting an excessive use of force situation. And I don't think individuals have a great deal of confidence that those decision makers, the police themselves, will make good choices. I think it's important to note that this bill was, as we stated in our legal filings, the timing of this bill and everything about it indicates that it's about policing African-American, Black and Brown communities. It was done in response to protests that, you know, that emerged out of those communities. The opportunity to provide input during the legislature for Black and Brown communities was prescribed. It was limited. They were cut off at the mics. Every step of the way, decision makers tried to suppress the votes of the African-American community. And so I think it's just reasonable to, that they have a, a concern and a fear that they're not going to be able to speak their truth to power, 
you know, with the decision makers who are authorized to, you know, make decisions about what a riot is under this bill. But, you know, just just to kind of push back just a little bit, it's more about worried about sort of the enforcement of this law rather than what's actually in the law, correct? Because it doesn't call out and say that, you know, protesting is illegal. It's not saying that if you're on the sidewalk and you've already got your permits, that people are going to harass you, give you a hard time. It's more about what could happen, right? Well, very much so. I mean, you're absolutely right. And this was pointed out in debate legislatively that the, you know, the act itself doesn't explicitly prohibit peaceful protests, but that's really not the point. The implementation of any criminal law is both the criminal law itself and how the executive through the policing function implements that legislation. Those are, you know, two components of it. And I think the concern here is what does it look like when you know, those decision makers, police are making decisions about what qualifies as a riot or aggravated assault or battery or robbery under this under this legislation. You know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, even under Jim Crow, they didn't call it Jim Crow. They didn't say, you know, there were certain things that they, you know, they always couched it in terms that looked acceptable to the community, but the impact of it was that it suppressed voting or it jailed African-American communities. It's the same thing here. This is just James Crow Esquire. It's a new name for the same sort of racial suppression tactics that we've seen through, you know, Florida's history. Yeah, you know, I and I, I grew up in the uh, Gulf South, and you know, I remember my dad would take me around and kind of show me places that you know they were long burnt out buildings and everything. Was talking about segregation, and so I think that's one of the things that I've been uncomfortable with when I heard that these laws are compared to Jim Crow, because that was back in real segregation days where you had two different populations separated by policies that were enforced. So I don't think it's quite the same. I think this is more of a matter of suspicion on police as opposed to actually what's contained in the law. But but Kirk, I appreciate the discussion here, but I want to get to a couple more questions before we close it out today. And so uh, this next one I have is based on bail policies in Florida. I'm just not familiar with them. I think you'll be much uh, more knowledgeable than me in this. But if you're arrested under this new law, basically you're not allowed to get out of jail until you make your first appearance in court. And that could be as I understand it, 24 to 48 hours afterwards. So how does that compare to what it was like before for the same offense? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So the current situation is that um, pretty much in every county in Florida, I'm not familiar with an uh, exception, although there might be, there are bond schedules that permit the jail to release individuals before their first appearance based on, you know, prescribed amount in that schedule. Or in some cases, you know, they're released on their own recognizance. What this does for a certain specific category of offenses, it says that you cannot, you cannot post that bail and get out. You will have to remain in the jail, you know, possibly overnight, but possibly for several nights before you can get to first appearance. And so I think the chilling effect is going to be that folks are going to, you know, ordinarily they might have thought, well, I might be engaging in some nonviolent resistance that might get me, you know, arrested, but I'll pay the bail that might be $250 or whatever, and I'll get out that day and I'll show up at first appearance and things will proceed from there. Now they're going to be making the calculation that I'm going to spend a night in jail. I might miss work. I might miss school. I might not be able to take care of family. And it's really problematic. And so therefore, it's obviously a a chilling effect on, on people's speech and activities. And last question, because you're closer to Florida, obviously, than I am. And this comes down to sort of governing powers uh, by the governor. I'm not exactly sure what the uh, Florida Constitution says about this. But in terms of uh, the ACLU's concern about usurping local control of policing, there's some budgetary uh, restraints here. So maybe walk us through that and we'll close it out. 
Yeah, thank you. Happy to. I think that what happens with this question about control of policing is that the bill specifically says that local municipalities can't defund the police. That might not be the exact wording, but it's the effect. And what it does is create an opportunity for there to be an objection to a budgetary decision that a city might make and that that is then referred back to the governor and to uh, to the state and they can make a different decision about what's going to happen with that budget. It only applies to situations where there might be a decrease in the budget, not necessarily an increase in the budget. And I think our concern about it is very much that it usurps local communities' opportunities to make decisions themselves about what's the right balance of policing or other mental health or social services kinds of programs that they have in their community that all relate to preserving public safety. There are numerous examples of successful programs around the country in New Jersey and in Oregon, particularly a program called Cahoots out of Eugene, Oregon. That is a mental health, and I believe it also relates to drug interventions. That is a very successful program working with individuals who have mental health problems and keeping them out of the justice system and taking the burden off of policing. And those are reasonable conversations for communities to have and policing is a local function. And so they ought to be able to have the opportunity to, to debate for themselves what the right balancing of policing and other services is in their community. And if that means that there's a cut in the policing budget, well then so be it. I mean, those are budgetary decisions that are made all the time. And I would be remiss if I didn't also take the opportunity to point out that that our complaints about this bill aren't just around some of the constitutional issues. This policing and budgeting item also raises the economic impacts of this bill. And there was some independent economic impact analysis that was done of the legislation that showed that we're looking at anywhere from a 25 to about $67 million increased economic impact to the state based on these criminal sanctions, the amount of time that individuals would be in jail, what that means in terms of overall you know, bed costs and things like that. And so there are real economic reasons why this legislation was a bad idea, in addition to all of the other reasons that I've mentioned previously. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Kirk, for today, but I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Once again, thank you listeners for choosing our show. We know you have other options out there, so we really appreciate the time that you invest with us. And also, thank you to our sponsor, Noda, for supporting the show. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for the heavy lift. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 